Okay. What do you want to talk about today? I don't know. You're the director of this program. <laughs> no pressure at all. No. I want to talk about entrepreneurship. Okay. Well, Wait, are we, are we live already? Well, like I kind of record people, but I don't tell them because I, okay, we have right. fun, s- fun like banter s- before the podcast. Clearly unfair. <laughs> <laughs> this is Chris Reynolds and welcome to the Entrepreneur House podcast. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for established entrepreneurs creating events and retreats all over the world. If you're ready to take your business to the next level with other successful entrepreneurs, be sure to apply at theentrepreneurhouse.com. Today, listeners, we have an incredibly inspirational woman on the show. Her name is Alessandra Russell. Alex, as her friends call her, is the founder of a social charity in Thailand that gives males involved with sex trafficking a safe haven. The name of this charity is Urban Light. After a shocking trip to Thailand, Alex saw firsthand how young men and boys were being exploited in the sex trade. She had a powerful encounter with one of these boys that changed her life forever. She didn't know it then, but it was the catalyst that would change her life and the lives of hundreds of boys for years to come. Fast forward seven years and Urban Light has been able to provide support and aid for over 4,000 boys. They give them a place to hang out where they are not judged. They give them a place to eat, a place to play video games, a place to bond with people who understand their circumstances, and a place to take care of their health. I got the opportunity to meet Alex and visit Urban Light this past year. What I saw was a community of young men and boys who were just normal boys. They laughed, they smiled, they played. Every day all over the world, young men and boys are at risk of the dark side of sex trafficking with nowhere to go for help. Alex recognized this and decided to become the light in a very dark space. Every day she deals with the highs and lows of what these boys go through and how hard it is for them to escape. Urban Light and Alex, in my opinion, are doing some of the most important work in this world, and she does it using her heart to lead the way. Today, I'm very honored to welcome a special friend to the show, the founder of Urban Light, Alex Russell. Let's do this. All right, in three, two, one, and welcome, Alex, to the podcast. How are you? Good, Chris. I'm so excited to be on this show today. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you for asking. And you're calling in from Washington, D.C., is that correct? I am. I am currently in my home base, the town I love, Washington, D.C., outside one of my favorite spots, Union Market. So, yes, I'm a very happy girl today. Good. Good to hear. Tell us what you have going on with Urban Light these days. Yeah. Wow. So Urban Light, uh, there's a whole lot of action happening with Urban Light. I'm currently stateside where I am doing a lot of storytelling surrounding our work with young boys um, in Thailand who are victims of trafficking and exploitation. So it's really about uh, me sharing the story with a new audience, with people who have maybe never realized the issue of trafficking in Thailand or worldwide. So I'm on this world kind of journey and tour to share the message about Urban Light. And um, so it's been kind of full on right now. We have about 600 boys that we served last year alone. Wow. So I'm in the process of finding funding to carry on with our amazing services and support through our youth center that's based in Chiang Mai. So not only am I trying to be a storyteller, I'm also trying to be a fundraiser which is uh, wearing a lot of different hats, I would say. <laughs> but <laughs> as, it's good. It's really good right now. As many entrepreneurs do. Alex, tell, exactly. us, tell us about how you got started with Urban Light to create it to the incredible program that it is today. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's actually quite simple. Um, I recognize pretty much a massive 
moral and services gap in a community of boys where um, that were working in the red light district in Chiang Mai. And I saw this immediate need for um, essentially for there to be an advocate um, on behalf of these boys and a disruptor. So I essentially was in Thailand for two weeks, happened to be walking through the red light district and recognized a community, a cluster of young boys. And when I approached these young boys, I realized through their storytelling, through their conversation, that uh, this was actually pretty common and that boys were essentially for sale uh, within the sex tourism industry in Thailand. So Mm. it was a need I really wasn't aware of at the time. And so I did what anyone would do, which was um, I wanted to pioneer this movement. And so I came back to the States and I sold my wedding ring. I sold my engagement ring for startup cash. Wow. And Chris, this was before Kickstarter. Okay. <laughs> so um, I ended up, I left my job um, in the inner city working at a youth center. And I left my husband for six months. And I pretty much just bought a flight back to Chiang Mai and became an outlier um, in the anti trafficking movement on behalf of boys. Wow, that's incredible. So I've got a lot of questions, and let's start yeah, with... Yeah, let's do it. Let's start with this one first. So you were working back in the U.S., correct, at a youth center in D.C.? Correct, yes. Okay. And you decided to quit the job, sell your engagement ring, and get some startup cash, leave the guy, and go to Thailand full-time to create Urban Light, correct? Correct. Okay. So were you in Thailand just on vacation or what were you doing down there? I was actually on a volunteer trip. So um, at the time when I was working in the inner city at a youth center, uh, one of my students became a victim of sex trafficking. Okay. And so that really opened up my eyes into this entire new underlying world um, that was also a billion dollar industry Mm. known as trafficking or modern day slavery. So the FBI agent that I had worked really closely with Um, in the rescue process, uh, became a really good kind of mentor and friend of mine. And he one day sent me an email and all I saw in the subject line was, you have to do this exclamation point, exclamation point. And so open the email and it's essentially an invite to Thailand to shadow different NGOs who were working in the anti-trafficking field. And so in my mind, I was like, first of all, when you think of Thailand, you think of elephants and, you know, palm trees and temples you don't necessarily think of trafficking and exploitation. And so I was there to research. I was there to shadow different organizations. And essentially, I was there to try to understand why Thailand was known as the sex capital of the world. Mm. So it was a two-week trip in and out. And it was in those you know, 14 days that I just fell in love with not just Thailand, but with all of these kids that I'd met in the boy bars of Chiang Mai. So you always had a knack for social work, I'm guessing, since you were in the industry beforehand. Did you, growing up, know that you wanted to do this type of work? Absolutely. I mean, ever since I was a child, I think seeing someone either mistreated or without freedom or free will, it always struck me to the core. Um, And for this reason, I think it's absolutely no coincidence that um, I started this organization that gives essentially young men back these very things, freedom, freedom of choice, freedom of will. So it's definitely been a theme throughout my life. So I want to go back to the moment when you were in Thailand and you saw that first group of boys and you you approached them on your own. Is that right? 
I did. Yeah. And so, I mean, in my mind, I thought this is a reality. This is why I'm here in Thailand was to essentially understand this environment and how I can go back home essentially to be an advocate on behalf of victims of trafficking. And so, um, I essentially went into this bar and I was the only woman in this bar full of men and bar full of boys. And I quickly found an empty chair and just sat down and just started observing. And it was in that observation process that one boy in particular came over and just was kind of looking down at me and looking at me and saying, you know, you hear no good, like go and kind of pushing me out of the bar. Wow. And I often joke that my Latina savviness, you know, the stubbornness in me <laughs> was looked up at him and met him with the same resistance. And I was like, you know, no, I know go. Okay. And so I just kind of gave my back and was secretly hoping he would just go away. Mm -hmm. And he didn't go away. And his persistence um, is what essentially started Urban Light, you know, six months later. But his persistence was sitting down across from me, looking me in the eye and saying, okay, you buy me beer. And I looked at him and I was like, no, you're like 15 years old. I'm not buying you beer. Mm -hmm. And we went through this banter of back and forth and eventually... He looked me in the eye and he was like, okay, you buy me Coca-Cola? <laughs> and so I just couldn't even deal with like the stubbornness of this teenage swagger. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at him and I said, okay, sure, I buy you Coca-Cola. And before I knew it, he's waving over his friends. And within 10 minutes, I have a table surrounded by some of the most um, comical, resilient, um, hysterical teenage boys. And it was through that evening of relationship building and hearing their stories and hearing why they're working in this bar and how they found themselves in these bars that I realized these kids are pretty badass. I mean, they're pretty resilient. They're pretty, pretty incredible human beings. And so it was, you know, two weeks of going to these bars every single night and seeing these boys that really motivated me to want to do something about this issue. Wow. Um, and so it started a long journey. I didn't realize that was going to be the catalyst that would completely shift my entire life. But it was that moment. Yeah. What were some of the stories that you heard? And I don't know how deep that the boys got at that first conversation, but maybe over those two weeks when you were observing the interactions in the bars, did you get into any personal stories with the boys? I mean, definitely what I've learned about Thai culture is you don't talk about emotional issues. You don't talk about sadness, but okay. yet I saw it on each one of their faces and through small conversations, you know, like you said, as kind of as deep as you can go in the bar of storytelling, you know, you heard stories of, you know, I have to do this. My family is poor. We live up in the village. There's no other opportunities. I do this so that my sister doesn't have to do this, or I do this so that I can put my younger brother through school. And so what you heard as a common theme throughout the stories that I heard in the bars that week was um, they are choosing to be the sacrificial lamb in the family. They're choosing to be the ones that have to go down into the cities, sell themselves so that they can make money to send back home. Mm. And so that was what I think struck me. But <clears throat> I think the moment that really... I saw the depths of their, um, their commitment to their family was the first night I was there. I was sitting down and we were playing rounds and rounds of connect four and drinking, you know, bottles and bottles of Coke. And at one point a man came over and tapped one of the boys on the shoulder that was sitting next to me. And I kind of look, look up at this massive, uh, Western man. 
And he looks at me with this kind of sense of entitlement, taps the boy, looks at him and says, let's go. Wow. And I remember looking down at the boy and I remember our eyes meeting and I remember the boy just kind of looking at me in shock and I'm an embarrassment Mm -hmm. and just kind of whying me, which is like, you know, putting his hands together and bowing his head to me, gets up and walks out with this guy and they get into a tuk-tuk, which is essentially a taxi together and leave. And I think at that moment, the hush over the table, all of the boys looking at me to like see what my reaction was going to be and seeing me burst into tears, um, I think was the moment I realized just how bad these boys had it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was really that moment of clarity where you're like, you want to scream, where is, where is everyone? Why is no one doing anything? Right. And everyone just kind of went on with their, with their evening. And so it was that boy that really, I'll never forget the way he looked at me that night. Did you go home afterwards, Alex? Uh, I started to cry, as mm-hmm. I think anybody in that situation would have. And the boys just comforted me. And um, after that, I definitely paid, paid the bill of Cokes and got up and, and went back to my hotel room. And I think it was in that moment that I called my husband in tears just crying at how unfair the world was and how unfair it was that these young boys had to go through this. And so um, that was, I think, where my true entrepreneurial spirit was (laughs) born, was in that moment. (laughs) Wow. So that night after that happened, were you able to sleep or did you have thoughts of, okay, I, I need to come back to Thailand and start helping these boys or what happened? It was definitely, I mean, I couldn't sleep that night. I was absolutely an emotional wreck and was processing with the other volunteers that were there. And so the rest of the week, myself and the rest of the volunteers that were part of this trip would go back to the bars and um, we would bring them laughter and food and hang out with them. And so it was definitely two weeks of just seeing what potential could happen and the potential of these young boys to what they could become or who they could be. And, uh, and so I would go back to the U S and through fits of tears and just kind of all of those emotions that you're experiencing, um, was pretty much, I saw my husband and he was looking at me and he was just like, you know what, either you have two options, either you quit with the crying or (laughs) you do something about it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I challenged him. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, I have no master's degree, no PhD. I have nothing that would essentially qualify me to start something in Thailand. Um, you know, he, I was like, I have no money. And he quickly looked down at my finger and said, well, you have your wedding ring and your engagement ring. You can sell that. There's your money. I was like, okay, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was kind of insulted, but then thought about it. And I was like, okay, that's a good point. I was like, well, I don't speak Thai. And his response was, well, there's something called Rosetta Stone. You can buy it and learn Thai. (laughs) And so I just had this list of excuses. But inside, it was truly something that I wanted to to accomplish. I wanted to see if I could do that. And so I did. I ended up leaving my job and buying a ticket back to Thailand. And I remember on the way there thinking, this is the most absurd thing I've ever done. I've left (laughs) security. I've left my husband. I've left my friends, my family, my dog. I mean, I was just in this turmoil of what have I just done? And yet when I walked back to the night, you know, to the night bazaar or the red light district that night, I was thinking, you know, am I going to see this boy that essentially changed my life? 
And sure enough, the first boy I see walking up to the bars was Oi, was the boy that will forever be known as um, that one person who changed my life. Wow. And he saw me and I saw him and he just kind of came up to me and was just like, what are you doing back here? And I told him, I said, you know what, I want to do something. I don't know what, but I need you to show me what I can do to help all of you and your friends get out of this lifestyle, get out of this life. And so he ended up being one of, till this day, one of my best and greatest mentors and teachers. Wow, that's powerful. Alex, when you were back in the States, how long were you back in the States before you came to Thailand? Was that six months? Yeah, so I was, um, it was about five months actually, yeah. Okay. And what'd your family say? I mean, everyone, including my family, uh, was completely skeptical, thought I was, had entirely lost my mind. You have uh, every type of naysayer that -hmm. exists. Anytime you're starting a passion project, in my case, or a business or a startup, you're always going to have those people that question you, that Mm -hmm. doubt you, that challenge you. And so it was really hard initially to look past that. And um, I'm so glad that I was able to tune those people out because otherwise, seven years later, I would not have Urban Light. Well, take us through that time when you first got back. How'd you get things set up? Yeah, so essentially I came back to the States and I surrounded myself with the most optimistic people, people that um, I call kind of my personal board. So people that would fill up that personal board were entrepreneurs, were visionaries, were disruptors, thought leaders, people who could really challenge my vision. Mm -hmm. And I found that being surrounded by those types of people you really are able to create something beyond yourself. And so I got home and I fundraised a whole heck of a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of the work actually happened when I was in Thailand. It was mostly stateside was about surrounding yourself with the people, getting all the legal work done. So starting an entity, starting a nonprofit, um, something that I knew nothing about. But it's amazing how legal Zoom can be your best friend (laughs) um, at the time. So... It was really, um, those were my initial steps, the design phase, I would say. And then the implementation phase was really on the ground and surrounding myself around the boys Mm -hmm. who essentially designed Urban Light. You know, I don't, I don't like to take credit for Urban Light. I truly feel like this was, uh, the creation of all of the boys from the Red Light District and telling me everything that they thought, uh, they needed and then designing it around their needs. So it wasn't a foreigner coming into a community saying, this is what I think you guys need. It was um, a collaborative effort. And that's what I think has gotten us to where we are today is that it's very much a Thai initiative. Mm -hmm. I'm essentially just kind of the captain steering the boat. But they're the ones that are entirely um, working it, planning it, spreading the word about it. So it's been a collective effort. So what was on your first agenda when you arrived back in Thailand? Did you immediately find a space to rent or what happened? It's funny how the universe conspires because I did not first find a, a space. Um, what I did was I was like, I'm going to start off small. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this really slowly and very strategically. So I thought. Um, <laughs> and so when I went to the bar, I asked the boys, you know, what do you guys need? And their response was, we really want to learn English because tourism here, not just sex tourism, but tourism here is a huge driver of income. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be able to be tour guides and tuk-tuk drivers and, um, you know, cooks and restaurants. And with that, 
for that, we need English. And so I said, okay, oi, you and your friends come to my hotel. There's a little cafe right next door, and I will teach you English. Uh, and so, of course, the very next day, punctually at 3 o'clock, I have a group of five boys that just show up. Nice. And so I start preparing these informal classes. And finally, I think after maybe eight days or so of, like, young, rowdy teenage boys covered in tattoos, smoking, the cafe owner finally comes up to me and they're like, Alex, we love you, but you cannot turn our cafe into a youth center. <laughs> so we're sorry, but you guys have to go. Mm -hmm. And so it was me and Oi going through road and road and road, just looking at signs and finally finding a small space. And Oi made, you know, the negotiation. And I remember it was $300 a month. And we moved into the space and I had all the boys painting and we went and bought tables and chairs. And so a month after I got there, we had a beautiful space that was colorful and inviting and essentially was a safe haven for the boys away from the red light district. So, yeah, that's kind of how we started slowly, slowly but surely. Now, did you put any regulations or conditions on being a part of Urban Light with the boys? You know, they have so many, um, I, I say the boys coming down to the city, they're so kind of just wanderlust. They're, you know, they roam. They're not used to rules. And so I tried it initially to implement some rules and regulations. And then I thought, you know what, this is going to backfire and this is just not going to work with the boys. So, um, you know, I tried to say no smoking. That didn't happen. <laughs> I tried to say you have to, you know, help with X, Y, or Z. That didn't happen. <laughs> So what I realized really worked was giving them the freedom to um, kind of rule themselves and make themselves accountable. And it's amazing when you give boys, essentially teenage boys, that space, they will implement their own rules. And so I found the boys more eager to help with cooking or going to the market to buy the food for lunch that day or doing dishes or cleaning up. And so that is um, is what I've learned is have fun putting regulations and rules on teenage boys. It just, it just doesn't work. <laughs> but, um, to say they're, they're helpful and considerate is, um, an understatement. They're beyond that. Alex, you mentioned when the boys come to the city, they kind of roam around. Uh, what does that mean exactly? Where are a lot of these boys coming from? So a lot of our boys are hill tribe boys. So they've grown up in very remote villages, far from the city of Chiang Mai or any other major city. And so their lifestyle, what they're accustomed to and used to is um, very quiet days. Um, their houses are made of, of essentially thatch or wood. And they grow up in the farms. They grow up in the fields. And so as you can imagine, leaving that space, leaving that community to come into this kind of vibrant concrete jungle filled with lights and, um, and endless possibilities and fun it's sensory overload for the boys. Mm -hmm. And so you get a 12-year-old leaving their home, leaving their family, and finding themselves in a city like Chiang Mai. It's impossible not to get into the space of what do I do? I'm 12 years old. I legally can't work. I probably, it's likely I don't have an ID card to even legally work. And so that's how they eventually end up in the red light district is that's a place that will hire them. That's a place where they can get money. They can get food. Um, and that's kind of where the downfall starts. So they're introduced because they're in a, basically a state of desperation, but who's introducing them into this lifestyle? 
It's yeah. And you're absolutely right. It's about survival. It's about what, what can I do in order to make my family proud? What can I do in order to provide for my family? And so they go where a lot of the other boys from their village have gone. Mm -hmm. Um, so word of mouth, they end up, um, you know, following their friends. And if their friends and peers are working in the red light district, that's where they'll end up hanging out. And so the bar owners, um, the traffickers themselves, they have this endless supply of desperate young boys who want to make money to make their families proud. And oftentimes, you know, people say, well, why, why don't they just leave? And I mean, Chris, you've been in Thailand, you've spent time in Chiang Mai, you've spent time around the Thai culture. Uh, something that I learned so early on was they may not be shackled or tied to the bars, but the psychological shackles mm -hmm. are just as strong and just as powerful. And that's something that I didn't understand until I had spent some time um, personally there myself. So is this something that the country of Thailand is trying to address or is it just overlooked? I think there's very much, um, you know, I think the government is very much trying to address this issue, but it's such a massive issue. Mm -hmm. And it's such a, I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and everyone's profiting, everyone's benefiting. So whether you're a tuk-tuk driver or a restaurant owner or a hotel, everyone's gaining from mm. this illicit industry. And so what's so hard is that the only ones who aren't gaining are the young boys because they end up with addiction. They end up with HIV. They end up with depression. There's so many different things that people aren't realizing um, that the boys actually have to endure. So as much as people are trying to address it, it's definitely a massive issue that needs not just NGOs, but government support, different stakeholders within the community. And so it's a collaborative effort. So take us into the space of urban light today and what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis there. Oh, there's a lot happening. <laughs> um, and I miss it. I definitely miss it when I'm away from it. It's, um, it's so much fun. I mean, I have an incredible team that surrounds me every day that supports me and the boys. And, um, so, I mean, every day we open, you know, we pull up our gate at, at 10 AM and usually from that moment, we have boys waiting outside to come in to take showers, to get on the computers, to talk to one of our case managers or social workers. And so we're always greeted by a handful of boys when we first open and we have, um, so essentially we'll have a big family lunch at 12. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my favorite part of the day, just because it's a, it's a time where you can sit, you can converse, you can hear stories, you can hear, um, kind of what each boy has been up to throughout the week. And, um, I mean, it's beautiful for me. I love sharing a table. And so it's, I would say probably my favorite time of the day and the boys have helped with the preparation of the lunch. And, um, and then throughout the day we have just different activities. So whether it's one-on-one -on -one counseling happening, whether it's group therapy, um, computer learning, um, we might have a movie day that day. We might have an excursion planned. There's always some type of activity to get the boys engaged, to get that kind of relationship building and trust formed. Um, and then there rarely goes a day without some type of emergency. So whether a boy's gotten into a motorbike accident or maybe a boy was involved in a fight the night before, either with a customer or with another boy from the bar. Um, unfortunately, there's always those types of health issues. Um, and so there's definitely never a dull moment at, at the center, that's for sure. 
But what gives me respite is that, you know, at least there's a space for them to come to. Um, it's filled with people that care and, and are ready to to kind of help and be that support for them. Where do you get your staff from, Alex? So one thing when I started Urban Light, I really wanted to stay committed and true to was making sure that our staff was Thai um, and mm. that they were local and invested in their community. And so I've been so fortunate to get um, kind of just local local ties, people who are really committed not just to their community, but to seeing this population of vulnerable youth thrive. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I've had staff that have been with me for, for four years. Um, and so it's slowly growing. And um, yeah, it's really just word of mouth. Um, posting Facebook is actually really your friend mm -hmm. when you're looking for staff. So it's been, we've been really fortunate to kind of collect this incredible group of, of pioneers and advocates for the boys. What's your vision for Urban Light in the next 10 years? Wow. Um, how about just the next 10 minutes? My gosh. <laughs> but I mean, but the next 10 years, I would definitely love to see um, a stream of Urban Lights either throughout Thailand or throughout the world. Um, you know, as an entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, I definitely have the vision now to think big mm -hmm. and I would love to be able to see urban light scale um, because there is such a massive need and boys throughout the world are so overlooked and not part of the global dialogue. So to be able to have safe spaces for young boys in Mexico or in Rio in, um, you know, cities throughout the world, that's something that I would love to see. Yeah. I think this is an industry that's really overlooked and really hidden amongst the back alleys and and streets of our cities and we don't even know it's happening i mean i was surprised one time i read that denver colorado's the number one city for sex trafficking in the united states and i thought to myself denver like that's denver yeah, yeah. that's where john denver's from or, you know, <laughs> right it seems so wholesome right and, yeah uh, yeah for sure and it's really happening all over the world but if we're not, it truly is. And I think if you're in tune with that type of issue, like I am, you see it in every city, whether you're in a town, a city, a mm. suburb, um, it just kind of pops out at you. And yeah, you really are, you become amazed at how rampant it is. Now, are there any other organizations working with sex trafficking and with boys in Thailand? There's not. Uh, actually, yeah. I take that back. A few years ago, there wasn't. Um, mm -hmm. We have now an one other organization in Bangkok that's starting to work with boys. But um, for the past six years, we've been one of the only organizations working on behalf of vulnerable boys in Thailand and pretty much throughout the world. Um, so becoming an expert in working with this population has been incredible because so many people are now approaching me to, um, to learn best practices, to learn how we started this. What are some of the challenges that we've faced? And so it's really exciting to be that pioneer and now to be able to be an educator for others. Mm -hmm. But it's also sad because we want to be able to have other people that we can align ourselves with who are in the same fight. And to be clear, there's a lot of organizations out there that are set up to help females in sex trafficking, but not very many for boys, correct? Correct. And that's what's shocking is... Uh, you know, you always hear about trafficking or sex trafficking amongst women and girls and to hear that it's happening to young, young boys and to men is something that is still shocking to pretty much everyone that I, that I speak to about the work we're doing. 
And we want to change that. We want it to be not just a female issue um, and not just a male issue, but rather a human issue. Alex, what kind of suggestions would you give to people out there that are interested in starting a charitable business from a passion that they have? Um, I would definitely say to avoid the F word, which is fear, (laughs) (laughs) fear in this case, um, fear in this case, uh, it's something, um, that one of my greatest mentors and friend, uh, Richard Beaumont once taught me early on in the startup phase of urban light was, um, let your faith be bigger than your fear is what he told me. Mm -hmm. And, um, if you begin to kind of accept failure as the process, um, you'll see that it's, it's, it's inevitable. Um, you know, it will actually give you gusto and it'll give you that resiliency to, to move forward and to actually have faith in yourself. And so, um, I mean, one of my favorite quotes is fall down seven times, stand up eight. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very critical when you're starting any project, whether it's a nonprofit or a business is you're going to have so many naysayers. You're going to fear so much, but it's all about, um, pushing forward and knowing that, um, if this is meant to be your purpose, that it will, it will happen. And again, surrounding yourself around people who can inspire, challenge, hold you accountable. Um, I think those are the main keys that have always served me over the past seven years. How do you balance your life of running an organization this size? And I'm sure it's a constraint on your time. Like there's a lot of demands on your shoulders. What are some ways where you keep your balance and your sanity, so to speak? Great question. (laughs) Um, Talk to some people. I don't know if they'd say I'm too sane right now. But I mean, you have to be crazy when you start something like this, right? I mean, it was Steve Jobs who said it's the crazy ones. And so um, really, when you start a project, and this is something that um, someone really wise once told me is that you are going to eat, sleep, dream your project, your purpose, your company, your business. And so for the past seven years, it's been really hard to balance. It's been hard to choose family over urban light or friends over urban light. And so um, I think finally now during this chapter, I'm realizing that balance is so key Mm -hmm. um, because it's easy to throw everything into, for me, urban light. And, um, And so now more than ever, I'm realizing you need to have you need to force yourself to step away. You need to force yourself to go to that yoga class. You need to force yourself to go to, um, you know, that entrepreneur house meetup. So it's, you know, it's those types of things that have kept me, um, have kept me grounded, I would say for sure. Very cool. And is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners, Alex? Um, I would just really encourage people to take this time. We're at such an incredible moment in our history right now, especially in the U.S. with everything that's going on. And, um, you know, you're seeing so many activists come together. You're seeing so many movements start. And so I would just really want to encourage as I leave the U.S. to um, encourage people to really find their passion, to find their cause, to find that issue that they want to stand up for. There's so many issues, whether it's the LGBTQ community, whether it's the anti-trafficking community, whether it's the um, Wilderness Conservation Act movement, there's so many things to stand behind. And so for me, I would just really love to encourage people to support one of those organizations to get involved. Um, and whether it's Urban Light or another organization, I think it's so key to have that that passion that you stand behind. So 
Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a remarkable year, and I'm just so honored to have met, for example, you through this journey. And um, yeah, I just want to invite anyone to to look us up, and if anyone who is listening is ever in Chiang Mai, you know, we'd love to be able to have their support and their visit and their time while they're there. Alex, that's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing it with us, and I'm sure you're going to inspire a lot of listeners out there too. Thank you, Chris. You're very welcome. We're going to wrap up there and say goodbye to listeners, say goodbye to Alex, and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. We wanted to leave you with a special message about Alex and Urban Light. Urban Light is a full-on charity and is funded from generous people who are inspired by the work that is being done there. According to EqualityNow.org, trafficking women and children for sexual exploitation is the fastest-growing criminal enterprise in the world. There are around 20.9 million adults and children being bought and sold worldwide into commercial sexual servitude and forced labor or bonded labor. Unfortunately, there are only a few places to go escape this trade. Most organizations that help these children are set up to handle females. The number of places for males involved in sex trafficking is extremely low. That is why it's so important that Urban Light and Alex keep the movement happening. If you felt inspired by Alex's story and would like to contribute, we have attached a link to the show notes. Thank you all for your time and attention, and go check out what Urban Light is doing. The organization is making some extreme strides to make a massive difference to make this world a better place. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for established entrepreneurs. Imagine spending an extended period of time with other successful entrepreneurs working together and growing your business. Day to day, you interact with other driven and smart business people. Spending an extended period of time around them alters your business and your mentality around business. Goals are set, business grows, new partnerships develop, greater profit margins are achieved, the productivity skyrockets for those that are in the entrepreneur house, and you get to have an incredible adventure while doing it. This year we have three different events, a three-day productivity weekend in different cities all around the world, a two-week all-inclusive retreat for entrepreneurs with six-figure businesses. This will be full of workshops, masterminds, and adventure. Then a four-week event in Chiang Mai, Thailand for established entrepreneurs, also full of workshops, masterminds, advisors, and fun weekend social events. Be sure to check out the details at theentrepreneurhouse.com as soon as possible. These events will fill up fast. For those of you that are interested in have some questions be sure to contact us through the entrepreneurhouse.com forward slash contact we will respond as soon as possible for now saludos from somewhere in the world